Well, hey, gang, welcome to our first ever what we're calling Starting Point Morning. Uh, these are services, as we've explained in the last few weeks, that are being deliberately designed uh, to be disproportionately relevant to people who are either newer in their faith journey or who come from no faith journey at all. So sometimes it can be kind of intimidating to be part of a church experience knowing that you come from no background. But on these starting point mornings, we're trying to make the conversation specifically relevant to you. And to do that, as we thought about it internally, uh, we thought that we would start in these starting point mornings, kind of at the very beginning of where people uh, with little or no faith would start, and that is at a place of little or no faith. And so we wanted to talk about the idea of why a person would believe or maybe why a person wouldn't believe. And uh, at the top of the list of our ideas was the opportunity to interview uh, local newspaper columnist Grant LaFleche. And so thankfully, Grant was willing to sit down with us today. And uh, Grant, I want to welcome you here. Well, thank you very much. Happy uh, to be here. Grant and I, just so you know, have only minimally met before. Like two conversations, maybe three? Yeah, we, yeah. we, we are not uh, you know, long-time you know, best friends or anything. And uh, <laughs> we may not be friends at the end of this. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll just... <laughs> we'll just set that up. I sort of feel that we need, in introducing you, the yeah. uh, the Darth Vader music playing in Almost, the background. Almost, yeah. Or I haven't uh, been hit by lightning yet here this morning, <laughs> so we're good so far. Grant has never preached in a church before, so uh, he's happy to be here. But uh, in all seriousness, uh, you're taking a risk being here. We appreciate you uh, engaging in this conversation. Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's very gracious. And uh, uh, we're thrilled to get to know you a little bit more uh, today. Uh, wanted to start out, though, uh, just getting to know you as a, sure. as a person, uh, both for me and uh, for the rest of our audience across our locations. Um, you haven't always been a resident of Niagara. So just give us a bit of background before we get into the meat of the conversation. Sure, sure. Uh, where you came from, how you ended up here. Uh, well, as a journalist, I started in Calgary, which is my hometown, in uh, 1997. I was a cub reporter at the Calgary Herald, which, for those who don't know newspapers, means even when you get a really good idea, your editor says, that's fantastic. Jeff, you've been doing this for 20 years. Here's the story Grant came up with. Grant, go cover the pumpkin festival or, or whatever. Um, but so I really you started in 1997. 1997. Well, I, I started too. I didn't, I didn't have any gray hair. Well, probably I was a cub pastor. Cub pastor, <laughs> rookie pastor, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I worked there for about a year and a half, and then a more senior post opened up in St. Catharines at the Standard. And my editor urged me to apply for the job, which I eventually got. The idea was I get some more experience, have more responsibility, work there for four or five years, and then go back to the show. Yeah. Uh, in the that brain drain kicks yes, in, right? Yeah. <laughs> Intervening in that four or five years was, as most people will know by now, was the, the downturn in the newspaper industry. Mm. That's when the big layoffs started, the circulation decline mm. started, all the stuff the industry is still struggling with. So where when I left, you know, Conrad Black owned the whole chain. There were, yeah. there, you you, you could, couldn't walk into a newsroom without finding an empty spot to get a job. Those all dried up. And so I've been here ever since. I, I, it, I know that kind of sounds like a complaint. It probably shouldn't. The newspaper's been very good to me. I've been yeah. able to do very cool stuff, including uh, uh, meeting you and, and doing this kind of conversation. Um, but yeah, so I've been here a long time, since 1998. Summer of 98, I started. You're almost a lifer. Almost a lifer. Almost yeah, sometimes lifer. it feels that way. That's great. Um, now, more specific to your journalistic background, how did you get into that? Was it a passion you always had? Were you writing no. stories and doing stuff as a kid? See, how do you get it to be a journalist? That's how most people start. And, and I, don't, I don't know how you go from, in, in your case, you know, being a civilian and then <laughs> being a, a, a pastor. Um, <laughs> 
But in my case, I, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't ever wake up, you know, as a young guy saying, I want to be a, a Woodward and Bernstein, you know, this is what yeah. I want to do. Yeah. Um, I graduated from Bishop's University in Quebec with an honors degree in political studies and history. And fantastic education, great university, learned a lot. But, you know, when you come out holding a political studies degree and a history degree, you know, that doesn't get you a job necessarily. Yeah, yeah. So I worked at a youth center in northern Alberta for a while. And then when that was over, I didn't have a job. At the time, I was engaged. Um, I saw that, wow, I need a career. And my mother happened to be a VP advertising at the Calgary Herald. So she oh, said, okay. well, job sh I can get you job shadow a guy just to see if you'd like it. On my very first time at bat, I got a front page scoop on the Calgary Herald. Wow. I bought a, of a, it was about a chemical plant that had blown up outside okay. the city. And so the editor said, uh, do you want to like stick around? <laughs> so I, I was an unpaid volunteer intern for three months before they brought me on staff and sort of the rest is history. That's a very non-typical way. Most, yeah. most journalists now, they go to Ryerson or Western or something and they, they go to journalism school and they get a placement through an internship and they make their connections that way. So I'm, I'm a bit old school okay. in that respect. We have some non-typical ways of becoming pastors around here, so yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll save that for another day. Uh, Grant, we uh, got together to have a conversation about faith today, yes. and uh, I really appreciate you engaging uh, in this dialogue with us. Obviously, it's uh, of a personal nature, and yes. so I, I appreciate you being willing to do that. Just so everyone's clear, Grant has seen these questions in advance. I haven't seen Grant's answers in advance. <laughs> so this is a little bit of a choose-your-own-adventure uh, style conversation. We'll yep. kind of see where it goes. But uh, you've been, uh, in your columns, somewhat outspoken when it comes to your atheism. Yes. Uh, your non-belief. Did you originally, originally come from that background? Talk about how you grew up in your no, exposure and it's, to faith. It's, I know, I think there is a, a thought amongst believers because, let's face it, we live in a religious normative society. In our particular culture, it's a Christian normative society. So there's this thought that the atheist is the guy who's sort of the fist-shaking, something terrible has happened to me, so I'm blaming you, God, and, and, and that's not really... I didn't come from a religious household. We were, we were pretty non-religious. We didn't go to church. My brother and I did, however, go to Catholic school because my father is what you could call a just-in-case Catholic. Okay. Like he's a just-in-case Christian. And we would say, like, we don't go to church. Why are we going to Catholic school? Like, it seems a little bit crazy. And he would say, well, just in case the Catholics are right. And so my brother and I would say, well, then why aren't we Jewish? You know, why aren't we yeah. Hindu? Like, yeah. it seems to us the odds, if that's how you're playing the game. Um, my, my sort of interaction with Christianity as a young guy was primarily through Catholic school. And that's where my first kind of butting of heads happened. Mm -hmm. um, as a young guy, for instance, I got in a terrific argument in grade six with a priest who was teaching us about Noah's Ark. And it's my favorite story because looking back, you think, oh, the seeds were planted. You know, the, what's the old story, right? The, you reap what you sow. That's where the <laughs> seeds were planted very probably. Um, and there was a map on the wall. And he was very, he was actually a very good preacher. He's very entertaining. And he's showing us sort of in, in real life, here is where the Middle East is, this is where Noah's hanging out. And he's, he's telling us about all the animals and two by two and so on and so forth. I had just learned a few days before that there had been a European explorer who had been the first guy to go to the South Pole and see penguins. And so in my teeny tiny little brain is the first glimmer of deductive reasoning. And I put my hand up and I said, he says, yes, Mr. LaFleche. I said, father, how did Noah get penguins? And it, you can't totally trust your childhood memories, yeah, right? Because the yeah. brain is not necessarily yeah. the best data storage device. But my, my recollection was that he just looked at me like I had blown my own head off. Like he didn't quite know <laughs> how to answer the question. And I was too young to kind of realize, well, there isn't a rational... There's, it's like, how did Athena emerge from the forehead of Zeus? There's not a rational answer to that. 
But I, my little brain, my young mind, I thought, oh, he's talking down to me. It was sort of a God works in mysterious ways answer, yeah. and I got very frustrated. I may have slammed my hand down on the desk and said, either you're lying or the, te- the homeroom teacher I pointed at her, you're lying or the Bible is lying, which is a no-no in Catholic school. Don't ever <laughs> say that. And I got detention for it. And that kind of set this kind of a conflict in me, where, particularly when it came to Catholicism. Like I wanted to know, and the answers never seemed to make mm-hmm. sense. And then as I got older, that sort of shifted to more looking at science and philosophy and morals mm-hmm. and ethics. But yeah, so I mean, my, my sort of young faith connection. Your grade six my Noah's grade Ark six, Grade crisis. six Noah's Ark uh, crisis, sort of looking back, set the stage. Wow. And, and that's kind of where it began. So I was, I was always immersed in that kind of Catholic milieu because I went to Catholic school from you know, grade one all the way to grade 12 uh, in, uh, out in Alberta. So would you say that that was your first Grant rants? That might have been. <laughs> that might have been. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it got so bad. I mean, you know, you the te- genesis of Grant The rant. genesis of the Grant rant. Grade six, St. Jude Elementary, wow. Mrs. Gillis's homeroom class. Um, you know, when I got older and, and uh, by the time I got to grade 12, I had, I was, that's when Grant rant was really kind of in its embryotic stage because okay. I was the guy, not even in an intelligent way or a respectful way, I just wanted to, I was like, what, 16, yeah. trying to be a pain. Okay. So I would say to the, because the, you have religious class. stirring the drink at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And I would yeah. say things to the teacher like, Father, or it was, sometimes it was a priest. There were still priests in those days. I would say, Father, so let me see if I got this straight. I'm Joseph. I come home from a long day at the carpentry shop, and my fiance, who I've not touched, by the by, mm-hmm. says, honey, we're pregnant. And it's not your kid. It's God's. And I'm, I'm like, I'm kicking her to the curb. She's clearly treating on me. as a grant, go to the principal's office. <laughs> and I mean, that wasn't even sort of a thought. It was just my, I was, you know, being a rebel, teenage rebel trying to poke, poke authority figure. But that's often where the poking was done uh, for my case. That, that the inconsistencies of how you understood the yes. stories of the Bible yes. kept grading on you. It in did, yeah. Increasingly and, bothersome ways, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, and I, you know, I have since, you know, since then, <laughs> I have met much more thoughtful and much more engaged uh, believers of, of many religions who you can have a much more uh, useful dialogue about. This doesn't mean we're necessarily going to come to the same conclusion, yeah. but it doesn't seem as, as necessarily as wildly bizarre as it did when I was very young. Because yeah. when you're that young, you're, you're trying very hard to understand things, and if authority figures can't even give you an answer that makes some semblance of sense, you, you, there are younger people who will just go, nope, I'm out. Yeah. I'm out because it doesn't make any sense to me. Why am I wasting my time? Yeah. With it? Now, as you uh, developed in your, your, as a person and as your thinking matured, mm-hmm. uh, have there been any key influences or you know, really mm-hmm. significant voices in your thought development to get to that place? Yeah, there's, you know, having had the advantage of seeing the questions beforehand, uh, there, I thought about that, and there are a few um, uh, sort of non, if you look at, I mean, there were, there were, Pre, believe it or not, Catholic priests who I would have arguments with, and I sort of missed those arguments because they were very useful and they were engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Buddhism was a big one. When I was in university, I was still struck with the idea that you had to believe in something. This was, mm-hmm. this, for a lot of people, this is important. You have some kind of religious belief. And Buddhism had a particular kind of, its, its ethical and moral values spoke to me much more clearly than anything I had experienced sort of in the Judeo-Christian yeah. mold of things. Yeah. Um, uh, science was a big one, science and philosophy. When I was in university and you're exposed to uh, Plato and Aristotle and Kant yeah. and Nietzsche, and that, you start thinking about things in a much more uh, different fashion, way, much yeah. more radical, yeah, in, in a robust way. Um, and then this will come as no surprise, I think, because I think a lot of people feel this way. 
uh, 9-11 was a, was a big one in terms of, of assessing religion. And uh, the Four Horsemen, as they're called, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel yeah. Dennett, uh, Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris, because they all wrote immediately after mm-hmm. uh, the 9-11, their books had, had come out. And all this stuff had a profound impact uh, in the way I thought about religion, the way I approached religion, the way I thought about the supernatural, mm-hmm. questions of God and eternity and all these things. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of between, say, 1997 and about 2003 or four, where any kind of vestige of religion I still had or, or, or faith, religious faith, that just finally just let it, okay. it went away. It just okay. went away. Okay. Um, I want to drill into this a little deeper. Absolutely. Uh, not just to understand you, but to help all of us uh, who are either in relationship with people uh, who don't have a faith or who would profess an atheistic uh, worldview to to just understand this better. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've heard people say before that you're not totally understood until you feel understood by the other person. And uh, so kind of on behalf of all the atheists and non-believers or not yet believers in the room, uh, I'm hoping that you can kind of represent them for us. Sure. uh, I'll I'll go to... It's it's funny, just, just to caveat that a little... Trying to, to, say, gather atheists together or non-believers mm. together, the joke is it's a bit like herding cats. Mm. Because unlike in the, in the Christian context, I mean, everybody who is watching the sermon on a Sunday morning, they're gonna be, you're going to have a whole kaleidoscope of demographics and people who think about different things, but there's sort of some very basic core tenets of the, of the faith that, are that pretty you all have in common. Yeah. I mean, if you show up to Sunday and you think, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't executed and resurrected, it's sort of like, bing, you're out. I mean, you're not, I mean, whatever else you think, you're, you really probably cannot legitimately self-describe yourself as a Christian. Uh, it's much different in atheism. There's only one thing that connects us, which is the lack of belief. Okay. Uh, the rest of it can be, you could be a nihilist, you could be a, a free market secularist, you could be a communist, you could be all kinds of things. So it, I guess as we go forward, just to caveat that, that I can't speak for atheism in a monolithic sense. Yeah. I can speak from my experience and, and my experience of other non-believers, and, and I'll do this my best. Is, this is helpful for me, because my first question would be like, what is your definition of atheist? Um, is there one, is there... You know, th- well, I mean, one, so, so it comes, yeah, all? I mean, that comes to us from the Latin, atheist, which means without God, without, God. without yep. theism. Yep. Um, on a very fundamental, all it means is that you're a person who does not believe in the God or gods. Um, in our modern context, it's a rejection, generally speaking, of the supernatural. Uh, there are some very interesting Pew studies, though, the Pew Research studies. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll interview atheists. and so I don't believe in God. I don't believe in devils. I don't believe in demons. I, I, I might believe in fairies in the garden, though. Like, there's a weird, okay. there's a weird kind of, of, of thing that goes on. I don't even like the term atheist, to be honest. I mean, in this conversation, that's how I identify. You're not offended him. by it. No, I'm not okay. offended by it. Okay. I just, it's, it's strange to me only in this sense. Um, and I, when I say this, I don't mean to belittle anybody's religious belief, but... I, don't, I also do not believe in Bigfoot, and I don't believe in vampires. But I don't need to identify myself as an A-Sasquatchist yeah. or an A-Nosfernatuist. Yeah. Um, I, I, Write those terms down. Yeah, A-Sasquatchist, <laughs> A-Nosfernatuist. But when you live in a religious normative society, you, you, it sort of dignifies the thing it denies. Yeah. yeah? It's, it's, so yeah. it's a bit weird, because you would not, as a Christian, you would not call yourself an, an A-Islamist or an right. a, a right. Jewish or something, a Hebrewist, you wouldn't say that because it doesn't make it, because the definition is a positive one. Does the feeling of the term, because of the A, mm-hmm. you know, what it's, what it's not, does it, does it create a sense of marginalization or abnormality? I think it can. I think it can. And I think that it's taken on in the last decade a kind of sectarian meaning. 
that it now there are conferences that are all about unbelief and and, and atheism. Yeah, yeah. And there was a thing called Atheism Plus that kicked up a little while ago, which yeah. was non-believers who also were on the side of sort of social justice issues. Okay. Um, I've largely stayed back from that because I don't feel the need to sort of gather together in a room with other people to talk about the things I don't believe yeah, in. Yeah. Um, this kind of discussion is much more fruitful to me than sitting across from, from another atheist and go, well, yeah, well, that's crazy. Well, of course it's crazy. Yeah. You know, I don't need to believe. I mean, I already know what I don't believe. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's, a very, it's a kind of a tricky thing to pin down. Mm. At the very basic level, though, it just means you, you don't believe in God or gods. And interestingly, and, and this for, for your audience, um, it also means we don't believe in things like the devil, which you, you will sometimes hear um, believers will, you know, the, the, the type that are going to shake their fist and they will say, well, you know, this is the, you know, you're on the side of the devil yeah. or the devil's talking to you. And, yeah. you. and they try to make this case that you're, 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 against, you're against God, so therefore you're with the devil. Mm-hmm. And you say, how can, if I don't believe the one exists, why do you mm-hmm. think I believe in the other? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't believe in either. Yeah. Uh, beyond that kind of very basic definition, you then start dealing in, in areas of sort of philosophy and moral ethics, okay. right? Um, so maybe we have to personalize this to yourself. Sure, absolutely. To the degree that you can speak Yeah, was, to that was like other, a storm of words out of my mouth. Yeah, there, yeah. no. Um, so if, if an atheist's view is uh, a rejection of the belief or existence of God, yes. Um, how are you viewing some of those other spiritual dynamics, things like eternity, things like creation, mm-hmm. uh, some of those other features yeah. of what a typical faith uh, includes? So uh, on those two points, so the question of eternity is interesting. So, I mean, my atheism has, I suppose, three kind of, if, if I put them into pillars when I was reading your question thinking about it, um, the reasons why I'm an atheist or how it kind of functions intellectually okay. with me. One is how you get there. How yeah. you get there. One is scientific and evidentiary. Yep. Uh, the other is philosophical and ethical, and the last is political. Um, so when I, when I ponder a question like, what, is it, what does eternity mean? Um, that's the first one. That's, that's science. So we know, for instance, uh, the universe is at least 14 billion years old from the Big Bang forward. We know our planet is about 4 billion years old. That's a huge span of time. I mean, that's more than our brains can kind of comfortably uh, uh, manage. And so when you start thinking about eternity, I mean, think about Big Bang physics, for instance. So we know for sure from the evidence that the universe did have a starting point, at which point a lot of religionists start to salivate, because, like, that's, that's right. God. Because before that Cause starting before that. point... But so the, quest, but the question <laughs> that begins to kind of bake your noodle a little bit is that if, if the whole universe, they call it space-time, right? Time and space are, are physical things. Yeah. Um, if if space-time begins at a singular point, what the heck does the question before mean if before has no time and that's the point where you start to get a headache because physicists can't quite answer they keep making this incremental progress but Mm -hmm. they keep running into this part where the math Mm -hmm. falls apart and they go you know um what does it mean going the other way we know at some point if the universe keeps expanding the way it is gravitational forces break down the universe goes cold there's entropy um uh, uh, so eternity to me is a question that you reach a point where you just like i just can't grapple with that that mm. it's it's so immense it's so beyond my little blink of existence in this in this massive universe that i don't i don't quite know how to handle it on, on the question of something like creation if, if by cre- well let me ask you this I mean, what do you mean by creation do you mean the universe in toto do you mean human life do you mean life on earth 
I mean however you'd approach that. Okay. Just where stuff started, how stuff started. Well, I'll put it this yeah. way, and, and, and this was, um, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson, the, the famous uh, astrophysicist, talk about this once, and it, it, it does two things. It kind of answers your question from the perspective of somebody like myself, and it, I think it also shows you that even though the atheist typically doesn't have that sort of sense of the divine or that sense of wonder that you might feel when you contemplate God or Jesus, yeah. that we're not without that sense of the nimbus, the sense of wonder. So we know, for instance, that all the material that you're made of and that for everybody watching this, all the stuff you're made of, your clothes, your shoes, the, the, the molecules in, in your body, those are all traceable to the cores of, of supergiant stars way out in space billions of years ago that went nova or supernova and exploded. And those chemically rich guts eventually seeded nebula clouds, which condensed into planets and stars, and including Earth, including us, because we, we arise from the material that's, that's here. So what that means is this, and this is the part that's really cool. I get shivers even thinking about it. It means that we are connected to our planet chemically, because we're made of the same stuff. We're connected not just to each other, but to all life on Earth biologically, because of the process of evolution by natural selection. And we're connected to the rest of the universe atomically, because we're all made from stardust, as Carl Sagan would say. Uh, that, to me, is amazing. And so when I think about creation, that's what I think of. It's, it's this very large continuum of everything mm. that on some level is all interconnected. It's interesting that it, even from an atheist perspective, uh, there's a sense of awe Absolutely. In, in all of it. I, mean, I think, I think a, a believer, a faith-based person, you know, flies over the Rocky Mountains mm -hmm. and has a sense of awe. Yes. But assumes that if there isn't a God whose awe you're directing that mm -hmm. sense of awe towards, uh, that you don't live with that sense of awe. Not true. No, not true at all. And when I was uh, in the late 80s, I was you know, still quite young, um, Carl Sagan, he was, he was still alive, and he was part of NASA's Voyager project. The Voyager probes were these spacecraft that were sent to explore the solar system, and then once they were done, they just kind of shot off into deep space. And he turned the camera back on one of them. This is his famous pale blue dot. He turns the camera back, take one last picture of Earth while you could still see it. Mm. And it is a sea of stars, and there's a little teeny tiny point of light kind of suspended in a, what looks like a sunbeam. It's an artifact in the camera, but that's what it looks like. It's amazing. And when I saw that, the first thing you think is if that little point of light, which was no bigger than, smaller than your thumbnail in the photo, uh, if that light went out tomorrow, the universe simply wouldn't care. Mm. It's not relevant on this, on this enormous scale. And then you start to realize a couple of things. One, this is the only place we've got. It's our only home. This is the only life we've got. There's no do-afters. There's no mulligans. Yeah. So you sort of begin to feel this sense of, simultaneously, the sense of smallness. In the, in the face of the universe, and the sense of largeness that you're part of it, and then a sense of responsibility to make the best of it whilst it's all here. Um, few more clarifying yeah. questions that we'll just kind of shotgun through. Um, as an atheist, how do you view the 10 seconds after you die? Um, I look at it this way. I don't, I, I, I don't know what life was like before I was born. I don't remember it, uh, so I suspect it will be much the same. Okay. How does an atheist uh, view the Christian faith? That's a very complicated question. <laughs> in for, three for, sentences in or three less. Three sentences or less. Um, so I think, I think the, the, the sort of religion in total, I think most atheists would say it's like all other religion or mythology. It's an, it, it was an attempt to answer the big questions of life. Why are we here? Where do we go? What does it all mean? How should I best relate to other people? So on and so forth. Um, but we don't ascribe to it any more 
merit, excuse me, than most other religions or most other uh, mythologies. As you look at faith-based people, especially Christian faith-based yep. people, um, do you differentiate between believing in the Bible and believing in Jesus, or are they one and the same? I know, I know in some, um, in some denominations, that's a, that's a very big difference, right? At the same time, you will hear, particularly if you go farther right in the political spectrum, people will identify, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, a, as though there was some other sort. Yeah. Um, so I think generally, no. I mean, you, you, you have no Jesus to believe in were his stories not written down in the Bible in the first place. Yeah. They are in, it's like Socrates and Plato. Socrates' philosophy is super awesome. It's great. But we have no way to know. We'd never know about him were Plato not writing about him. Mm -hmm. So if you remove Plato's dialogues from the equation, there's no more Socrates to think about. So I kind of look at it that way. Okay. And again, uh, Grant, knowing that you can't speak on behalf of every yeah, yeah. atheist across Niagara, um, how does an atheist typically, or maybe more personally, how do you specifically view this historical figure yes. named Jesus? That's kind of the Trump question yeah. from a Christian perspective. I love that right? question. Okay. Because I differ from a lot of my sort of fellow heathens on this question. I think a lot of atheists look at... Fellow heathens. Fellow heathens. That's <laughs> no us. offense to heathens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I think a lot of atheists will sort of knee-jerk look at those stories. The gospel. Let's just confine ourselves to the Gospels for okay. the moment. Just look okay. at those stories, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his death and resurrection. Yeah. Um, if you were a person in the ancient world, those stories seem very familiar when they first begin to be taught because the Greek and Roman world has... Hercules. They have all these other mythological heroes who, you know, uh, if you're familiar at all with Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, there's yeah. this sort of template that seems to exist in all human we societies. We call it the monomythic cycle. The, the, the monomythic here. cycle, yes. And so if you lay down. Speaking my language, Greg. Right, yeah. So if you lay down the story of Jesus on it, it, it matches very, very well. Yeah. Same with Hercules, same with many, many others. And so a lot of atheists will say, well, he's clearly an entirely mythological figure. Mm. I don't necessarily take that view. Mm. And there's two reasons why. The, the first, and this isn't evidence of any sort, so I'm not, I can't speak in any yeah. definitive fashion without a hot tub time machine to go back yeah. and check. Um, first, there are, if he was a completely mythological figure that was just sort of riffing off the monolith, monomyth, consider the little bits and pieces we know about what Jesus' personality might have been. I know in the movies, he's sort of like a, a, a hippie, right? He's right. usually like He's always got of, long hair. He's always got long yeah. hair. He's always white. Yeah. He wasn't white. Um, <laughs> And he sort of just this very nice, easygoing dude a lot of the time, sort of a wise man sort of figure. Yeah. In the Gospels, though, he does some very, he has, there's, there's personality traits that, that come out. He's often rude. He's often rude to his mother. Um, when he does heal people, it's like the, the disciples are all like, come, come on, man, like, just help this guy. And he's like, no, don't bother me. Fine, here, he's yeah. fixed. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that suggests to me, if you were just creating a myth out of whole cloth, why would you include those kinds of personality? Why not just make him completely benevolent? Kind yeah. of personality, totally, totally uh, perfect. Yeah. Why does he have to have those more human failings yeah. in a story that doesn't usually contain them? So there's that. That makes me think. Yeah. He gets tired. He gets, he gets tired. He, gets, he does get frustrated. Yeah. These are very human elements that in, in Greek and Roman mythology, mm. you, you see all the time. Yeah. But in the specific kind of Christian milieu, this dude's supposed to be perfect. So... It, it's, it strikes me that there must have been a guy behind, there, there must have been a guy behind the story, and, and those personality quirks left such an impression on the people who passed the stories down yeah. that by the time they were written, they're still there. So, as an atheist, then, do you believe 
that there was a historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth. I tend to think so, yes. You tend to think so. And, and the other part that makes me think so is not really a, a sort of how he might appear as a man, is some bits of the, the fundamental ideas under, that underpin Christianity. So in Greek and Roman myth, Hercules is a perfect example, or Theseus. To be a hero wasn't to be a good guy necessarily. It was to be the doer of great things. The Romans had this idea that if you did great things, you lifted the whole empire up or the whole city up. And to, but to be a hero, you had to be smart, strong, brave. You had to be able to tackle the monsters and, 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 and save the people from the hydra or whatever. Well, who inherits the earth in Christianity? The it's meek. the meek. Yeah. It's the sick. It's the weak. Imagine the effect that would have had on an audience 2,000 years ago who are being told if you're sick, if you're weak, you can never aspire to be a hero. You can never be the great man. And this message is saying, well, in fact, the, the great man is not necessarily the one who's going to, who gets the, the, the prize at the end of the day. Um, that is so abnormal in terms of the way that people thought about things at mm -hmm. the time. Again, I tend to think that's unique enough that that had to come from, a, that, that's coming from a very personal place. That's coming from somebody who clearly spent time, more time amongst the poor and the downtrodden than he necessarily did amongst the rich and the wealthy. So, I mean, I understand none of this is very definitive, yeah. but it, it's always left an impression on me that there had to be a real person behind those stories and, and those notions percolated through and survived in the, in the text. So a, a classic uh, kind of Christian to non-Christian mm -hmm. question then would be, you know, if there was a historical figure mm -hmm. that, you know, history and society acknowledges existed named Jesus of Nazareth, and he claimed to be the son of God, mm -hmm. they, they call it the three L's, is he a liar? Yep. Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? C.S. Lewis, yeah. Right? So which, which, as you process that in your reading and in your reflections, if he did exist mm -hmm. and kind of claim these things, how, how, how do I make sense of that? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, you and I exist. I, I could make an extraordinary claim right now. Um, I could say I'm the reincarnation of, of Elvis. And the great thing is you can't disprove that. Um, I, can I say, might lean toward believing You that. might lean toward <laughs> believing it, especially when my hair gets a little longer. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. But I, you know, the, so, so, and I understand, like, that, that's very much, um, this is C.S. Lewis's thing. Either what Jesus said was absolutely true, or he was a liar and a madman. Yeah. I tend to think uh, that's, that's a false dichotomy. Yeah. He may well have believed he was a divine or semi-divine figure, and his followers may well have believed it. The fact that a, a living person makes that claim does not make that claim true. Okay. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a threshold of evidence whenever, you know, like to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't see, I mean, I understand it. A lot of times people say, well, if he made the claim and if he was true, and if we can say, yes, these teachings, we feel comfortable subscribing to this ancient figure, then everything he said is true. And I don't, I don't, I don't take such a black and white view of it. Okay, okay. Um, again, you've seen these questions in yep. advance, so this was kind of the one I was most curious about. Knowing a bit more of your background yeah. and kind of coming from exposure to faith mm -hmm. um, and getting to where you've, you've gone to, um, could you ever see a day in the future where Grant LaFleche was not an atheist? Wow. Um, I, that's the question I had to like, I looked at it on the computer but screen. But I can't believe he's asking and me And I thought, question. yeah, he's not pulling his punches here, right? Um, <laughs> I so, can rant too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I guess, I guess with the caveat that it's unwise to say never, 
because so if we go back to the the, the three things I talked about before, scientific, so Jim evidentiary. saying so you are saying there is a chance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a small chance. I'm, I'm guided by I'm guided by evidence, both as a journalist and as a uh, as a man. So if there was sub real evidence, substantial evidence that said yes, this God exists, you know. It would be very hypocritical of me to say, well, I accept evolution is true on the basis of evidence. I accept physics on the basis of evidence. I accept the germ theory of disease. But I won't accept this bit where there's evidence. Now, here's where the tricky bit lies. And, and, and you know, maybe you can provide feedback on, on this side. Great many Christians place this tremendous emphasis on personal revelation. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah. It's a very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you step back from it, and that, by the way, that, I mean, as, as you well know, being this, I mean, this is your house, you, you know this. I mean, this goes right back to Saul of Tarsus, right? Yeah. Saul is on the road to Damascus. He gets hit by the, the, the bolt from the blue. Blinded. By blinded. He hears the voice, and he becomes, the Catholics would call, I knew him as St. Paul, yeah. but he becomes yeah, Paul, and Paul. he becomes the effective founder of the faith. Without him, there is no Christianity yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. From the point of view of myself, if I saw a blinding light and heard a voice I didn't hear, I would think I was having a psychotic episode. Yeah. Um, that sort of personal, it, it, as a kid, it always frustrated me too. So God appears to, he appears in the form of a talking burning bush. He appears to Paul when there's nobody else around. There's always this kind of, I heard God speak yeah. to me it's alone. drastic, obvious re revelation. Yeah. Like why doesn't he show up in the middle of the Super Bowl yeah. and just say, here I am, the stories are all true. So that kind of personal uh, 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 revelation would not be sufficient for me. I would, I would presume that there's something wrong with me. Okay. It have to be verifiable. It have to be something that, that you and I and, and everybody in here could just look at and agree on and, and verify. Uh, if that happened, yeah, you, you, you would have to say, if you're honest, intellectually honest, you'd have to say, yep, it exists. Now, whether I choose to believe in that deity's teachings, that becomes a question of moral and ethical philosophy. And so the answer is probably no. But... In terms of the existence, yeah, you could accept it with proper evidence. Okay. A um, bit more specific question then, because you know, from a faith perspective, one of the primary sources of evidence mm -hmm. of the reality of Jesus, mm -hmm. as we understand it, was intended by Jesus to be followers mm -hmm. of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about the advancement of the believability of Jesus versus the detracting of the believability in, in, in of my Jesus own case. based on followers of Jesus. How much do believers provide mm. evidence to the reality of Jesus? Uh, the short answer is none, um, which I um, know... A little, just... No, no, it, so again, so let, let, let's, well, let's take a step back and, and again use my, my uh, example of Socrates from before. Yeah. So he's one of the most famous of Greek philosophers. Socratic method comes from him. Yeah. A lot of the way in which we think about philosophy originates with this guy. He was a hundred, here's the thing. We talk about Socrates like he was real. Or in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Socrates. But we, <laughs> don't get sucked under, Socrates. But we talk about him as though he was an absolute real person. But we have no idea if he actually was. Yeah. He could have well been just a literary creation of Plato. Uh, and he used this character of Socrates in order to talk about these philosophical ideas. But we still use the Socratic method today. We still... Yeah turn, whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, in the Western society, so Socrates is kind of everywhere. He gets, he, you will use him in your sermons without thinking about it. Um, so the fact that you use the Socratic, you may use the Socratic method in making a particular argument or, or doing a particular teaching, does that mean there, that proves 
that Socrates was a real person. Right. No. The influence it, of Socrates the, the, doesn't mean the no. existence of Socrates. No, it means that logic. it means that yeah. the ideas had been put forward and yeah. they were strong enough yeah. and compelling enough to survive. So y the devoutness of your belief in something doesn't make the the supernatural claims of that belief necessarily true. That doesn't follow logically. Okay. Um, in, in the question of, you know, could you ever get there to a place of faith, mm -hmm. what would you feel right now is the biggest obstacle? Evidence. 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 I mean, if, if, if there was... If, kind of if, concrete, if there scientifically was, yeah, verifiable. If that evidence was there, then at that point you have to go, well, okay. So if this, if this he, she, it, God entity exists, then you have to start to, then you would have to start to rethink a whole lot of things. And how does that jibe with what we actually know about the known universe through science? And, and I mean, that would open up a whole other field yeah, okay. of, of, of thinking, yeah. Okay, but, but as far as the original question, the followers of Jesus, no. as we understand, don't provide the evidence. For no, the it provides the evidence for Christianity. Okay. It provides the evidence that those ideas continue on. It doesn't necessarily mean that th those claims are true. Okay. And just so we're clear, um, you haven't had no exposure to followers of Jesus. Oh, I've had lots even, of exposure, yeah. Uh, a few Good. years ago, you traveled to Guatemala. I did. Right? Spent time with Ted Van Der Zam and Weld of Hope. Yeah. So you've been kind of up close and personal. Absolutely. Too. And I would believe... Good Christians, good yes, examples. And, of yeah, I mean, and I, I figured this would come up just by some of the questions that are, are still to come in, in, um, in, your, uh, in your list of questions there. But yeah, I mean, exposure to somebody like Ted Van Der and Wells of Hope, to me, is sort of fortunate enough to have the, the exposure of the best of, of, of Christians, which I think comes up later when, when you, you, you're asking, uh, we'll touch on it in a bit. But Ted's belief is absolutely devout. Absolutely, it's rock solid. I don't know what it would take to move this guy yeah. off that faith. Um, and I am certainly moved on a personal level by what he does for other people. And I understand completely it's rooted in that belief. Yeah. But I still don't regard the, 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 the devoutness and the seriousness with which he takes it and that therefore takes his calling to help other people. That's still not evidence of the supernatural claims of the faith. Yeah, someone taking their faith seriously mm -hmm. and even demonstrating that yep. faith with a good degree, a respectable degree of integrity. Yes. Uh, to you, confirms the legitimacy of their faith, yes. not necessarily the le legitimacy of the God behind that faith. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful to understand. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because uh, one of our goals today wasn't just to foster understanding, um, but to kind of envision a little bit how people from a faith background and people from no faith background or an atheist background or uh, of different views can actually build bridges together yes. instead of view ourselves all in disparate, you know, kind of opposing competitive camps. And, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, learning to kind of understand for us as a church, learning to understand and relate to not yet believing people isn't just an exercise that we want to do in hopes of one day converting them. Mm -hmm. It's actually in hopes of having actual relationships and friendships with them yes. and even partnering together to make the part of the world, if not the whole world, where we live a better place. Yes. So, um, you know, a few more kind of specific questions around that subject matter. Uh, would you consider yourself a friend or enemy of the Christian church? I would say neither. Um, it, it, those who are familiar with my professional work know that what I'm opposed to is theocracy. I'm opposed to attempts to take our secular political institutions, which, by the way, protect you to do the things that you do here at yeah, Southridge, yeah. and say, no, it's not, freedom of religion is not good enough. We want to have our faith, our version of our faith, 
dominant and it will yeah. decide the laws and it will decide everything from reproductive rights to who gets yeah. to marry, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, that I'm opposed to. As a, as a committed secularist, I'm, I'm committed to religious freedom. So you can have your church and believe whatever it is you, you want to believe. It's not my business, it's not the state's business to tell you otherwise. Yeah, for you, there's a strong separation of church and state. Absolutely. Yeah. And the only other thing I, I tend to get my hackles is when I really go Grant Ranty is attempts, <laughs> is, is attempts to, to, I guess, con convert by stealth. So the Gideons are, are a favorite target of mine. They make me bananas because they go to a grade five classroom and they want to hand out Bibles with study guides for little children who are too young to really understand what they're being asked mm -hmm. to, to do. And they do it under the guise of, well, it's education. Well, no, it's not. You're there to win converts and you're doing it to grade five students and not grade 12 students because the grade 12 student is much more likely to look at you and say, go stick it, mm -hmm. whereas the grade five student won't. Or it, to touch on Wells of Hope, one of the great things about Wells of Hope is Ted goes down there and does his work with one of the poorest communities in the world. He doesn't ask anybody to convert. He doesn't preach to them. He wants to bring them drinking water, schools, economic opportunities for women to fight poverty, and he never wants to sort of handing out rosaries while he's doing it. That's impressive. Yeah. That, to me, is, is the way you ought to do it. If you do see, and it's a big problem right now in the third world, especially from the United States. American missionaries go under the guise of being you know, NGOs, and they'll do some nominal work in a poor village somewhere. And what they really want to do is convert you because that's, their, that's more important to them. And that I find somewhat despicable. Mm. So uh, given that there are all kinds of reasons for rant, yes. um, how would you see believers and non-believers being able to be in relationship and partner together to make a better Niagara? Mm -hmm. um, in as much as I'm an atheist, in as much as I'm a secularist, uh, you could even label me an anti-theist, um, I'm also, I hope, a political pragmatist. Um, there are, you know, tens of thousands of Christian believers in Niagara, billions around the world. No matter how, it would be the height of arrogance of me to think, if I came up with just the perfect, rational, scientific argument, that believers are going to take their Bibles and go, oh, well, pff, uh, I'm yeah. done with that. Let's, that let's, column convinced me. We're yeah, done. exactly. Yeah, Close let's, the doors. Let's yeah. go read some Sir Isaac Newton and, yeah. and, and call it a day. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a completely unreasonable argument to make. And so the question then becomes, we're sort of stuck with each other. There's nowhere for us to go. Mm. So um, we have to be able to find those areas of common cause, the things that we, regardless of the starting point we come from, in your case, a faith place, in my case, that of an atheist. But are there places upon, important places to improve our community? Uh, fighting poverty, ensuring equal rights for everyone, um, those environmental uh, issues. There must be those areas on which we agree, even if we come at it differently. Yeah. And then the question is, well, if we, if we agree on those issues, there's no reason why we cannot stand as allies in, yeah. in, those, in those moments. Which is an important thing for, I think, all of us to, to hear you clarify because you're actually okay with us uh, working together on a common cause that I admittedly and overtly uh, am invested in or passionate about because of my yes. faith. It, it, it doesn't disqualify me from being able to partner with you on that. No, not at all. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I wouldn't have gone down to Guatemala with Wells of Hope, which is, which is founded on some very strong religious yeah. ideas, if I didn't understand that, no, it doesn't matter if, 
if I come at it from this angle and he comes at it from this one, because we're in the same place and we're trying to do the same thing to help other people. Mm. And, and so long as we can do that, then absolutely we can walk arm in arm mm. on, on those types of issues. Now, uh, I want to go down a, a more specific road here, and hopefully this is some bonus coverage, because what, uh, what actually got us in relationship uh, the first mm -hmm. time was a mutual friend uh, wanting to get us talking about some, I'm going to call it, uh, bad Christian press. Yes. <laughs> um, and the question was, you know, how ought we to respond? And you'll notice that I wasn't, you know, at that point really responding at all. And Southridge, you know, as, mm -hmm. as, a, as a community, wasn't really responding at all. And uh, I had some reasons for that. We can get into those if you, if you want. Sure. But you were challenging me and us as a church to step up and respond Absolutely. in situations like that. Talk about that a little bit. That was there, helpful for me. There's, there's, so one of the things I know... I have many Christian friends, and I know that makes, regardless of the denomination that makes them angry, um, is when somebody who claims to speak for the faith does something or says something awful, and then somewhere in that statement or doing of something awful says, you can't criticize me because this is my religion, this is what Christianity says, this is what God says, I'm only doing that. So you can't criticize me. And it's a don't shoot the messenger. It's just don't argument. shoot the messenger because yeah. this is what the Bible says. Yeah. This is what Christianity is. And there's a lot of Christians who are just wailing and gnashing their teeth saying, no, 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 that's not what we believe. That's not how we approach the world. And yet they stay silent. And, and, and when we spoke at, at, at that lunch, I, I raised the example of look at the deep, deep problems in the Muslim world where you have Islamists and jihadists just butchering people and trying to destroy civilization for their bizarre fantasy of, a, of international caliphate. I happen to be allies with guys like Majid Nawaz and, and uh, Rahil Raza. She works in Toronto. These are Muslim moderates who believe in liberal democracy, who believe in free speech, free religion, all the stuff that you and I believe in. They just happen to be Muslims, and they're trying to reform the faith mm. in order to allow that, to, that stuff to be promoted from within. They're just happening to be a very small minority right now. So I ally with them. In, in those, and they are successful because when, they, when something as terrible is done in the Muslim world or there's another terrorist attack, these are the first people who are condemning that point of view and they're the ones who are saying, no, that's not right. And so I think that you, you shouldn't be passive. I think this was the point I was trying to make yeah. to you before when we had lunch. You, when, when there's somebody out there who claims to be speaking for your faith and I know how seriously you take your faith, if that is not your point of view, if that is projecting a point of view of your religion and your worldview and the way in which you as a person and a pastor and as a church community want to interact with your community, you ought to be standing up and saying, no, that's not, that's not the way it is. And so I, I bantered a little bit saying, you know, I'm coming from a background where I want our, and in my own life and in our church's life, I want our actions to speak louder mm -hmm. than words. And I feel like, stepping into the verbal kind of diatribe mm -hmm. uh, risks appearing on the one hand judgmental and on the other hand it, it risks uh, positioning yourself uh, to be perceived in the same way that that person might be perceived. Yes. Now all this, there's a verse in the Bible that says answer a fool according to their folly yes. uh, <laughs> and run the yeah. risk of becoming like favorites. them yourself. Right? Yep. So for those two reasons, at least, uh, we've taken a very covert approach in those kinds of things. And you've challenged me to say, hey, people don't differentiate. People don't automatically mm -hmm. say, well, that's not Jeff, or that's yep. not Southridge, or that's not their leadership. Communities like that, they don't believe that. 
um, we actually have to step up and differentiate ourselves. I think so, and I think there's two reasons for that. I mean, I think especially for your your new members uh, who are who are watching this on Sunday morning, who maybe don't have a lot of experience yet with Southridge. Yeah. I mean, this this church community has stepped up in a number of ways. Uh, you have your your men's shelter. Um, I know that Mr. Arnold has taken his tours with with the, the mayor to show him yeah, parts the of the city. city. Yes, the whole. I mean, this church is is a cornerstone rock, if you will, of the. <laughs> Of the uh, a Compassionate City project, and that stuff is done largely without much fanfare. Like unless I physically come down to the shelter door and knock on it and say, "Jeff, I want to talk about your shelter." You're not talking to reporters. But we now live in a different world from when that started. We live in a social media world where we're being bombarded with information constantly, and unfortunately, the loudest voices—they're not even the majority of voices—but they tend to be the loudest are the extremists, the fundamentalists in the pejorative sense. The people who are judging people, condemning people, want to take their rights away. And the larger majority of people, whether they're church groups or other institutional groups, who are just trying to do work to make their communities better, when they stay silent. So, I mean, I've had these conversations with the people who will, you know, the, the incident that we can maybe talk about that uh, in more detail if you wish, but the incident that first brought us together. And I would talk to people and say, oh, uh, you know, these, these Christians in Niagara are terrible. And I would say, no this particular Christian mm. is fairly terrible. Mm. But I know there are Southridge and there's a couple other places in town that do absolutely indispensable work for our community. And you can't ignore that. Mm. And they'll say, well, yes, but. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the, they're still bad in some yeah. fashion or other. And so I, I think that um, in, the, in the media environment in which we live, in that bombardment of anybody being able to say whatever they want, I think it behooves groups like yours to be able to say, you don't even have to be, I suppose, necessarily aggressive about it or, or, or seek conflict, but to say just the way uh, a, a moderate Muslim might in the face of a, a much more extreme a terrorist attack, yeah. but might say, no, th this, is, this is not representative of us. This is not who, we're, this is, we're about this, we're not about that. Yeah. I think it's important. This was tremendously uh, <laughs> stimulating for me uh, to, to consider, and I, I, I hope that there's relevance out there to all of us from a faith-based perspective who are who are in the rooms across our locations, you know, not just as a church leader, but, you know, as a neighborhood resident, as a water cooler, you know, converser, uh, as someone on the schoolyard or, you know, in an office place, that just staying quiet and letting the reputation of Christianity be taken hostage by, you call them extremists, yep. uh, we live in a different world. That This has been something that, frankly, Grant, has been really messing with me. And, and, and it, just by way of an historical example, uh, to show you how powerful actions and words speak out. Uh, historically, you know about the great fires in Rome when Nero was emperor. And if you know your history, there were stories that came out afterwards because Christians were on the front lines. I mean, this very early church in these days. And they were on the front lines helping the, the burned victims and the homeless and the sick and everything. And so when you read the Roman accounts, it's like, oh, we thought these people were awful, right? These cultists yeah, yeah. who are now stepping up to help yeah. their neighbors. Um, and so what you, what you, your actions do speak loudly. It's just now you need sometimes to not be afraid to say it, yeah. you know, as well, because the, the world is just a yeah, different Your place. actions can speak louder than words, but sometimes Somebody words has to tell that story. Matter. We would not know that Christians made a difference in the Great Fire in Rome had somebody not written them down. It's yeah. just now the writing down happens like this. And so, you know, one of the things, and this is just a little plug for this right now, uh, that came out of this conversation yep. was that you had a vision uh, for a forum, a, a conversational mm -hmm. forum about faith, 
related things uh, that we're actually going to partner to do yes. uh, in Very a few exciting. weeks, right? Yeah. So it's on uh, Wednesday, November 23rd. Right. Uh, you want it hosted at right, our Glenridge right location uh, right. of Southridge, yep. 7 to 9 p.m. We're going to talk more about it for our faith community, but this is your idea. Yeah. So if it's bad, it's Grant's fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> but give a little bit of vision of what you imagine this to be. Um, well, out of our, out of our conversation um, that we had, uh, we've, we've been referencing, was this idea that um, if there are places upon which we can agree, and that we can, we can maybe partner together or we can at least lend our voices together on, on, on common cause. The really fascinating part about that to me is, well, you're coming at it from this devout faith perspective. I'm coming at it from a perspective of fairly shakable, unshakable unbelief. Non-faith. Yeah. Non-faith. Yeah. And yet we've, we've kind of ended up on some of these issues in the exact same place, mm-hmm. standing right side by mm-hmm. side. So I thought it would be useful in a couple of ways. One... Uh, to just explore those differences in, in philosophy ideas between us. How do we both come to this idea? What do these things mean to each other? And have that dialogue back and forth, somewhat like what we're doing now, except yeah. you're just asking the question. I'll be able to ask questions of you. Uh, on, on, I got on my own rants. For He's the, got his own rants. for that day. Yeah, it should be fun. <laughs> and, and, but I think that instead of doing it in a question, you know, sort of these, these sort of grand atheist versus preacher debates where it's like, does God exist? Is Christianity yeah. good or bad? It was more of a question of how can we explore that in a way that gets us to the point, despite some of those differences, on where we agree and yeah. where we can work together. Yeah. And that, to me, is a much more interesting conversation. Because, as I said before, we are stuck with each other. Yeah. Like, until, until the sun goes cold and there's no life left on this planet, there's going to be believers and unbelievers. And the choice we face is whether or not we are going to antagonize each other constantly. You trying to convert me, my rejecting you and calling you a moron or something. Yeah. Or do we find those areas of common ground where we can actually accomplish something worthwhile? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's going to be audience interaction. It's going to be audience interaction. It, the Part of this is, I mean, you and I could probably talk about this until sunup. Yeah. Until, our, you know, our, our respective significant <laughs> others drag us away saying, like, enough. Um, but it's also interesting to hear from, from people, both uh, your church community and people in the public who hopefully will join us to ask questions of you and I. So hopefully at the end of the day, we're not necessarily judging each other so harshly. And we understand that this is our community in total and that we in total are responsible for it. It's been fantastic. Uh, Grant, I am sure that there have been times in your life when you have been subjective to sit in church and listen. Yeah. Today is the exact opposite where you get a chance to sit at a church and have people listen to you. Yeah. So uh, in what we hope is an unedited uh, (laughs) opportunity... Uh, do you have any kind of final thoughts or comments or even rants? Uh, I'd love to give you the freedom just to have a free shot at Southridge Community Church. It, it, <laughs> oh, the temptation. Right? <laughs> I'm in the desert this now. This is called a days. favor, and yeah, I'm going to yeah. get this one day. Um, you know, I thought about that you know, a lot, what, how I would address the, the, the church audience and, and address you on this particular point. And I guess, you know, it, I'm not, this is not a conversation where I'm saying, I, th- I think your faith is fundamentally flawed, or I think your belief in the supernatural is so flawed, let it go. What I'm more interested in in this context is to say, listen, if you don't understand why the person next to you is an unbeliever or is a person of another faith, try to talk to them not with the sense that you're going to convert them and then there's as if God has a tote board and goes, well, Grant got two converts today, so he gets a cookie. Um, try to understand them. Because look at the state of the world today. Look how much conflict is there based on people trying to force their ideas on other people. 
based on not understanding their neighbors, not understanding that this person is a human being worthy of dignity. And maybe that person next to you thinks the same about you. Um, it's, 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 it's sort of a, a non-judgmental dialogue to understand each other, understand where your differences are. Don't say, I'm going to change you into something else. Understand where they come from, and then that's where you can find the places where relationships can be built, mm. human relationships mm. can be built. And if down the road somebody converts or not converts, so what? At the end of the day, we're, we're both human beings. We both have to live in this world together. Um, so, and, and, you know, let's face it. Despite the fact that Jesus, you know, I mean, he, let's face it, he caused a riot when he flipped over the tables at the temple. I mean, you can only imagine what that looked like. The stuff that I took away from a young person until today from, from the New Testament is that sort of I'm, I'm walking with people who need help because they need help. Jesus wasn't healing the sick and saying, now, I've healed your leprosy. You have to now do what I say and believe as I believe. He healed them and then walked away. And that, to me, is more the example worth following than the attempt to kind of create a larger legion of believers. Well, listen, uh, on behalf of our church community, I just want to say thanks so much. Oh, thank you. You've been uh, very for gracious. carving out the time and uh, just sharing your thoughts, even your rants uh, <laughs> with us. Like I said earlier, I've only started to get to know you yep. uh, outside of reading your column regularly as a standard subscriber. Thank you for uh, keeping me gainfully employed. <laughs> exactly. I uh, thank you for keeping my kids <laughs> in their delivery of yes, said newspaper. Yes, absolutely. Um, I appreciate you very much, and not Likewise. just as a person. Uh, as a person, uh, I appreciate your thoughtfulness uh, around here. The value of thoughtful engagement in faith uh, is very high, even if someone sees things differently. Yep. And uh, I appreciate your thoughtfulness very much. And uh, not only respect your background, but re respect the depths and, uh, of engagement and perspectives that you bring to the table. So it goes it, both ways. It fascinates me, and I'm intrigued to even dialogue more. I hope that uh, others uh, across our locations have the opportunity to have this kind of relationship in your own life and to really, uh, not in an argumentative way, but in a curious way, really make the most of it. More than that, though, I appreciate your concern for our community. Uh, you're you. almost a lifer now. Almost, yeah. And uh, certainly, you know, outside of a stint in university, I'm Niagara, born and raised. I care very much yep. uh, about this place. And for Jesus' sake and in his vision of what this place could be, uh, I want to give the rest of the best of my one and only life to doing that. For a very different reasons, you're giving the best of your life to doing that. And I hope that we can do more of that together. I so think we will. I'm, uh, I'm excited for the 23rd of November. I hope you'll all make a note of that. And gang, I hope you'll make a note of November 20th, uh, which is our next starting point morning. Uh, we'll let you know of the uh, topic in the weeks to come. But thanks so much for joining us today. I know it's been a long conversation, but I hope uh, a fruitful one for you. Uh, have a great morning.